Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. And those verses we read from verse 30 to the end. John Newton is known for a number of things. He was a slave trader who was converted and became one of the great instruments and incentives behind the work of William Wilberforce in the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire. He's famous as a hymn writer. He wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, which is familiar all around the world to all kinds of generations of people. But one of his hymns isn't known so well, a hymn that's very seldom ever sung. And the hymn really raises a question that this passage we've just read raises this evening. The hymn goes like this, what think ye of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest until you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears in your view as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed towards you, and mercy or wrath is your lot. What think you of Christ? That's my question this evening. What do you think about Jesus? Newton says it will try, that is, it will test, it will evaluate, it will make judgment on both your state and your scheme. That is, where you stand before God and what you think about God. The way you think as well as where you stand. You cannot be right in the rest. You cannot get anything right about the Christian message at all until you think rightly of Him. What do you think of Christ? That's the big question that's being asked in this central section of John's Gospel. And already we're, it's becoming very clear what some people think about Jesus. They, they don't think very much about Him. Or at least what they think about Him is such that they want to get rid of Him. Already we've been reading that they are wanting to persecute Him. They've begun to persecute Him. They're asking questions about Him. Where does He get His authority from? In fact, they're plotting to kill Him, chapter 5, 18. They're seeking all the more to kill Him because He was not only breaking the Sabbath, but He was making, He was calling God His own Father and making Himself equal with God. One of the, one of the features of Jesus in these central ch- uh, chapters of John's Gospel is that He is always making claims about Himself. He is talking about Himself. He is repeatedly saying what God has done for him, what God has given to him. The Father raises the dead, he says, and the Father has given me the power to raise the dead. The Father has life in himself. God is alive. He is the living God, and he's given it to me to have life in myself. I'm resurrection. I'm life. I do God's works. Anything God can do, I can do. Anything you can do, I can do better. Remember that song? He's saying anything God can do, I can do. Not better, but the same as. Those were stupendous claims. God can judge the world. And God has given me all judgment. In fact, God's not going to judge the world except through me. 
At the end of the day, it's Jesus you have to face. It's Jesus who's on the great white throne. It's Jesus before whom we will stand on that last day. All the fun functions that God performs, Jesus performs. At least those are his claims. And his mission, he's emphasized this over and over again. His mission is not to do what he wants to do, but only to do what God wants him to do. Every, all of these claims Jesus has been making in chapter 5. And the more he says about himself, the more antagonistic the authorities become. The more angry they become. And they're marveling at what he's doing, but they're getting mad at what he's doing also. So then you come to verse 30. He's making another claim. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is right because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus maintains a very fine balance in these verses. A balance between saying, anything God can do, I can do too. And yet at the same time saying, but I come into the world in my humanity only to do what the Father tells me to do. I'm submissive to my Father. God is my Father. I am the Son. The Father initiates and sends I obey and come into the world. So he's, he's balancing, he's holding in tension, not only the fact that he is claiming to be equal to God in power, but different from the Father in function, and sharing something of the essential nature of God, and yet at the same time in his humanity being obedient to the Father. Indeed, as the Son always wanting to please his Father in heaven. Now, those are the claims Jesus is making. And those are the claims that he realizes are now coming into conflict with the authorities. And so in verse 31, he is not dismissing his own statements. He is not dismissing the claims that he's been making for himself. But he does understand that things have now changed. Now things are becoming legal. The, the authorities have come. The authorities want to know more. So he's not now just speaking on his own behalf. Now we're moving, we're ratcheting things up, and we're moving into a legal confrontation. And so when you read verse 31, that's what you have to bear in mind. He's now talking against a legal background. And he knows that in a legal context, in a context where the authorities are coming to him, and he is now having to give formal legal defense, he then says, if I alone bear witness, then my testimony is not deemed true. That is deemed true by whom? Deemed true by the law, by the legal process. And it was the very simple fact that in the legal process of his day as today, he needed witnesses. In fact, because they were plotting to kill him, he needed witnesses because a capital case required at least two witnesses to back up the testimony of the accused. This is how it is in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, the law that he was operating from in the evidence, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. In other words, 
he knows it's a capital case. And so he's saying to them, he's saying to them, verse 31, if I make testimony myself, I know that's not deemed acceptable. So I don't need to do this. But for your sake, I'm going to call on my witnesses, two witnesses. And so he begins in verse 32 to say, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He's talking there about God. God is the other that he's thinking about there. God is his testimony. But he, he understands that they need more than him to talk about God. So he starts where they are. He starts where they are and he talks in verse 33 about John the Baptist. So let's look at the first witness that he calls to his defense. The witness of John, verses 33 to 35. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. He is raising this question himself. It's on people's mind. He knows what's on people's mind. And the question is, should he pose as a self-authenticating authority, or would that be Luke self-interested? Uh, he's not saying that it's not right for you to defend yourself. He's not saying that if you're in a court of law, a believer should not defend themselves before the law. Sometimes in interpersonal relationships, we shouldn't defend ourselves. We should, in a sense, submit to the other person for their sake. But when it's a formal thing, when it's a formal accusation, Jesus is not saying that self-testimony is inadmissible. It is. But in a formal court of law, there need to be witnesses. And he anticipates that. He talks about the witness of another who is God. But now he brings forward this human witness, John the Baptist. You sent to John, and John has borne witness to the truth. John the Baptist, very significant person in the Gospels. Jesus calls him the number one prophet behind him. He outdistances them all in terms of the significance of his ministry. Jesus uses this language. He burned and shone as the brightest light in the galaxy of prophets. John the Baptist shines like a bright, brilliant light, but he is not the light. He, like the others, is a temporary lamp. He may shine brighter than the other stars in the galaxy of prophetic witness, but he is only a temporary lamp. That's what the word means, a candle compared to the sun shining in its strength. Jesus says John was important, but you need to see his place. All he's doing is pointing his little spotlight towards Jesus. He's, he's joining with all the other little spotlights being turned, focused on this one who has now come onto the stage of world history, even the Lord Jesus himself. In Psalm 132, we're told that God would set up a lamp for his anointed one. That is, God would set up a spotlight to shine on his anointed one, his Messiah. And Jesus is saying, John was that spotlight. John was that lamp. John was the one who illuminated who Jesus was. But he was not the light. He was not the light. He, he highlighted the light. He pointed to the light. And he's saying to these people, you know when John came along here at the beginning, you were perfectly pleased to go out and listen to him. You thought John's renewal movement 
would be good for Judaism. You thought John's renewal movement would, uh, would uh, buck up the troops, make them feel more positive, would uh, may perhaps increase their giving and generosity to the work of the synagogue, and, and they would attend the services there, and you thought to yourself, this is a great new thing that John is doing. We'll go out and listen to him too. And you did that, Jesus says, for a while you listened to him. But you were selective in your listening to John. So long as he was decrying the things that, were, that you agreed were wrong, that was fine. But as soon as he exposed you, you rejected him. As soon as he started pointing to me when he called me the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. As soon as he said, this one who's coming was before me. That is, he was from of old, from eternity. That he is almost in the place of God. He's eternal and he's coming into the world. When he started saying that kind of stuff, you started to tune him out. You didn't listen to him anymore. And he emphasizes that they were selective in their receiving of John's ministry of the Word of God. Now, this happens to people. Maybe it's happening to you. Maybe you're one of these people who is selective in what you hear of the Word of God. People do that all the time in the world. People, for example, who are quite prepared to believe that Jesus was God manifested in the flesh, that is the incarnate God, the Word made flesh, who are quite prepared to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, have a problem with creation. You have a problem with creation, as is described in the Bible. Or you're quite prepared to believe that Jesus is the second and last Adam, and that what he did, he did for, on behalf of his people, but you're not prepared to believe that the historical Adam was historical or was a real person. You select it. Or maybe you're one of these people who like to read the indicatives of the Bible. That is, what the Bible says is true of the believer, what God has done for you, what God has achieved for you. But you don't like the imperatives of the Bible. Go and do this. Obey this. You're selective in your hearing of the Word of God. Do you know the reality is, we are quite prepared to hear the Word of God until the Word, until the Word of God begins to press and squeeze the pus point of sin in our lives. Ugh. You ever want to do that? I shall love doing that to my kids. They hated it. I want to squeeze this. That's what I'm doing all the time when I preach. Uh, Billy Sunday was once told by somebody, you know, we don't like your preaching because uh, you rub us the wrong way. He said, we well, you know what a cat does when you rub it the wrong way. It turns round. That's what repentance is. You turn round. Well, Jesus accuses them of a selective hearing of the Word of God. Now, why does he, John, why does he offer John as a witness? Notice what he says, verse 34. Not that I... Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, I don't really need to tell you this. But I'm telling you it anyway because you need to hear it. And you know, sometimes, sometimes you need to tell people what they need to hear, even though it may sound as if you're praising yourself. That's what Jesus is saying to them. This may sound as if I'm praising myself, drawing attention to what John says. 
But you need to hear this. You need to hear that John, whom you respected, spoke about me. You find the Apostle Paul doing that when he writes to the Corinthians on one occasion in 1 Corinthians 9. And uh, they've been accusing him of all kinds of things. And he writes to them and he says, you know, I really feel very uncomfortable with saying this. I really feel uh, a bit embarrassed. But, but you really need to hear this. You really need to hear this. And he says, you know, although I'm free from all, I made myself a servant of all that I may win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To the Gentiles who were under the law, to the Jew, those who were under the law, I became like one under the law. Although I myself am not under the law, that I may win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I may win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I may win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. Paul's defending himself before those who are accusing him. It's not a false thing to do, it's a right thing to do. And Jesus does it here, and he calls the witness of John. Then he goes, he reverts, verse 36, back to where he began, to the witness of the Father, verses 36 through 44. Now this whole section hangs together in a number of connecting things. Let me kind of show you them. Uh, it, it begins and ends with the people rejecting God's Word through His sent one, Jesus, and it ends with they reject God's Word in his sent one, Moses. When do you reject Jesus? You reject Moses. Then the next thing it shows, the second thing and then the penultimate thing, Scripture witnesses to Jesus. And there's life in the Scripture, and there's life in Jesus. Then the penultimate thing in the section, Moses testifies to Jesus. There's judgment from Moses, and Moses speaks of Christ. Then the third thing, Jesus does not receive glory from people. These people he's talking to, he's the third from last thing, they receive glory from one another. Fourth thing, Jesus knows them. He knows them. He knows them inside out. The mirror element, the fourth from last, is they do not receive Jesus. And at the, the heart of the section, they do not love God. Jesus comes from his Father. So those things tie the section together. And what Jesus says is this, the invisible God, the God whom they have not seen, has attested... Jesus, by the works and words that he gave Jesus to say and to do. You know, the Jews had a basis for thinking about these things. They knew, for example, that, that God had attested himself by miracles and works and wonders that he had done through Moses. All those, all those plagues, you remember, he, he brought in Egypt. All those miraculous things, the parting of the Red Sea and the, the water from the rock and the feeding of the manna. In fact, in the next chapter, Jesus is going to provide manna from heaven. He's going to feed this great multitude. He's going to do a miracle on a Moses scale for 5,000 people, 5,000 men and women and children besides. 
So they had a framework for understanding Jesus' argument here. He is saying, what have you seen? What have I been doing? What have I been accomplishing? What have you seen every day since I came onto the scene? Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. John says at the end of his book, the world could not contain the stories of Jesus' miraculous work every day, all the time, doing this for the three and a half years he was on the earth, pushing back the frontiers of sickness uh, in Palestine during that period. They never forgot it. They never forgot it, what Jesus did. But he puts it before them. You see the works that I'm doing. This is God's attestation. This is God's testimony. This is God's witness. Even Nicodemus, one of their own religious leaders, had come to Jesus and said to him, nobody can do the things that you do unless God, God was with you. Couldn't do it. Then he goes on the offensive. He says to them, his voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. One of the things John said right from the very beginning in this book is this. Jesus is the exegesis of God. Jesus is the exposition of God. He is the expression of God. He is the out, outpouring of God. You want to see the invisible God, you look at Jesus. That's what God looks like with skin on. The invisible God becomes visible in Jesus. The intangible God becomes tangible in Jesus. The inaudible God becomes audible in Jesus. Jesus is what? He is the Word of the Father. He is the voice of the Father. When God created the world in the beginning, when God said, let there be, it was Jesus' voice that was heard. And creation sprang to life. All things were made by Him and through Him and for Him. That's the reality. Jesus acts as God. And he says many, the scripture teaches that many people in the Old Testament had heard the voice of God. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, Isaiah. And John has already been expounded in chapter 1 on Exodus 33 and 34 where Moses met with God in Mount Sinai. And there Israel heard the glorious voice of God. They saw the fiery glory of his presence, but they did not see his form. Jesus is saying to these people, look, what Moses heard, what your forefathers heard, the Torah, the Word of God, that Word is now standing here in your midst. It's here in the middle of you. You are hearing the Torah in person. You are hearing the Word made flesh speak to you. Because Moses did see God, but you haven't. And Moses heard God's voice, and you've heard Moses, but you have not heeded the voice of God. And here is Jesus, God's Word and God's image, and they neither heard Him nor saw Him for who He was. 
these experts in the law, they often talked about the Torah, the law, being in them. Their scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, described the God-fearing individual as one who had God's word dwelling in his or her heart. But you see how Jesus smashes this to pieces. You do not have God's word abiding in you. Why? Because you do not believe the one whom he has sent. We're going to come back to this, but he goes on to show them that this is, this is the climactic claim that he's making about Scripture. I want you to notice this. We're going to come back and look at this in greater detail some other time. But here is his climactic claim about Scripture. You search the Scriptures. That's a good thing. The Bible tells you to do that. To search the Scriptures. You take it a bit far. You think that in them you have eternal life. That is just in the process. Reading the Bible, praying the Bible, memorizing. You think that just by doing that you have eternal life. But here's the deal. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me in order that you may have life. Who do you think God was promising to Adam and Eve at the gate of the garden when he promised the virgins, the, 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 the woman's seed would come into the world? Who was, who was Noah looking forward to? Who was Abraham putting his confidence in when he believed God? Who was Jacob speaking about when he talked about the, uh, the offspring of Judah who would be the king who would come into the world? Who was Moses speaking about when he said that there was going to be a Passover lamb, there was a Passover lamb and there would be a final prophet just like him. Who was Isaiah speaking of when he talked about the king born of a virgin and the suffering servant who would be rejected by his people? Who was it all speaking to you about? He says, me. But you refuse to come to me. Literally, you don't want to come to me. You don't want to do this. What we want is, has a massive effect on what we're prepared to do and able to believe. You wanted to rejoice for a moment while John was here, but you don't want to come to me. No wonder Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Why do you need to be born again? It's because what you want needs to be changed. What you want is not the God who is there. What you want is anything but the Lord Jesus. Your wants need to be changed. That's why you need to be born again. They did not want to come to Jesus. Why did they not want to come to Jesus? And here's where the rubber hits the road for us this evening. They did not want to come to Jesus. For this reason, he, he talks about himself, first of all. I do not receive glory from people. He introduces there very important ideas, the idea of honor or glory. He introduces two verbs that are linked, the verb to receive and the verb to seek. I don't seek or I don't seek glory from people. I don't receive glory from people. That is, I don't gain honor and status for myself from people. 
Jesus testifies that he does not seek glory from people for himself. Verse 44 gives that answer. Verse 43 shows how it works. Look at verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe? This is an absolute statement. How can you believe? And what's at stake in this absolute statement is faith in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. That is, you can't believe. Why can you not believe? Here's the reason. You are downright terrified of what people will think of you. What your peers will think of you. Your academic peers. Your colleagues at work. Your parents. Your siblings. Your friends. You're afraid of what they'll say about you. Will they think that somehow or other you've committed intellectual suicide? Will they think for one minute that perhaps you're one of these weak Christian people that need the stability and the support that comes like a crutch to those who need to have some kind of faith? Will they ridicule you? Will it affect your possibilities of advancement in your career? You are afraid of people. You, you don't want Jesus because you want human affirmation. You want human praise. You don't want Jesus because you want to be in the center. You want to be in control of things. You want to perhaps be made much of. You love being somebody. You love being one of the crowd, one of the in crowd. You pick whatever it is. How many of us are crippled by this idea of uh, wanting recognition from other people. You see, one of the reasons they hated Jesus was this. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. I've, Jesus says, I, I, don't, I don't look for praise from people. That's what makes me scary to you. I don't need your affirmation. I don't need your love and your warmth and affection. Do you know the most terrifyingly scary people in the world are the people who don't care what people think of them? That's why Jack Bauer is so amazingly wonderful. If you've ever watched 24, you'll know exactly what I'm speaking about. And if you don't watch 24, it's okay. There are ther there's therapists for people like you. But one of the things that Jack makes Jack Bauer absolute terrible is that he is driven by some principle and he, he really doesn't care what people think about him. So nobody likes him. I don't mean to compare Jack Bauer to Jesus. But that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, what makes me terrifying to you is I don't really need your backing. I really don't need your affirmation. But you're terrified. You're terrified to come to me because you are crippled by this need of affirmation from others. And here I am, I've come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. You see, this isn't just a Jewish problem. This is a human problem. This is the main problem. It may be your main problem. It may be the great bondage of your life. 
And Jesus came into the world, you see, to free us from slavery to the approval and praise of others. That's the great message of this passage, it seems to me. One of the reasons the love of human glory is contradictory to faith is that faith is drinking the living water of satisfaction from Christ alone. And if I, if I am drinking the living water that Jesus gives to me, if that's, if that's what's nourishing my soul, if my soul is fed and nourished by the knowledge of my Savior's smile of approval, if I'm coming to Jesus for the water of life, if I am drinking deeply of what Jesus gives to me, if my heart is on fire because the Lord Jesus has rescued me and ransomed me, if if everything in my life that is of any meaning to me is contingent upon what does Jesus think of me, then it frees me, frees me, liberates me from every other, every other praise that I might possibly, possibly seek. And I say to you this evening, maybe it's this very thing that's keeping you, keeping you from coming to Jesus. Jesus challenges these people. He challenges us tonight. Do you want Jesus? Do you want Jesus more than you want the affirmation of other people? The praise of man, the glory of man. Maybe that's the crunch point for you tonight. Maybe it's a crunch point for all of us at one level or another. It is for me regularly. It's the, it is the old enemy. I want to be liked. Do you want to be liked? Well, I lost that battle a long time ago. Seriously. So I just have to live with not being liked, okay? <clears throat> and day and daily I have to go back to the cross and look at Jesus and say, I find my satisfaction in you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that tonight as... Uh, We've been reflecting on these people in the past and ourselves today. And we come to this great question, what do you think of Christ? What think you of Christ is the test. We think of our state. Where do we stand before you? That question answers where we stand before you. How we think about the world and how we think about God, how we think about you, how we think about salvation. What think you of Christ solves that question. And so tonight we pray that there would be many who would listen to this <clears throat> here and around the world, that they would come to cast themselves on the Savior. We pray in his strong name. Amen.